0: University professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers. And this week, we're going to be doing something slightly different. I mean, not really different, but a little bit different in that this week, we have a a new player. We have a new guest to the show. And this guest is someone who formerly spent a lot of time in academia, but now has been spending most of his time on the other side of the fence, which is, I have invited onto the show novelist, short story writer, and close personal friend of mine, Dale Bridges. Dale is a writer who lives in Austin, Texas, and... Dale and I have been close friends most of our adult lives, really, for probably going on a little over 20 years now. So welcome to the show, Dale. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on. This is a show about popular culture, and Dale and I, our friendship over the last 20 years, got its start really over popular culture and it got its start over popular culture in a very interesting way. Well, I don't want to tell your story for you, Dale. So I'm going to let you tell your story here in a second, but Dale comes from a really interesting cultural background. And I thought maybe that's where we would start and then work our way into pop culture stuff. What do you think about that?
1: All right. That sounds good. Okay. So, yeah, like you said, my background was, I mean, not um, completely unique, but somewhat unique, especially in this day and age. I was born uh, or raised in a really small town, I, and I think before we get any further, it's important to define a small town, because sometimes I, I talk to people and they say that they were grew up in a small town, and then I, I talked to them a little more and I found out they were five miles outside of Chicago. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, no disrespect, but you grew up near a big town, in, in, if that's the case. What I'm talking about is sort of the cultural isolation and geographic isolation of a small town. And so usually what I ask people is, how long did it take you to drive to the nearest Walmart? And if it, if it was like there was a Walmart in town or there's a Walmart the next city over, it's not really what I'm talking about in a small town. It took us like an hour and a half to get to a city that had a Walmart, which we did maybe once a year to do, you know, back to school shopping or maybe uh, Christmas shopping if we got back during that in the winter. So it was a town of about 2,000 people of that time, uh, Yuma, Colorado, out in the middle of the prairie, which is practically Nebraska out there. People talk about Colorado in the mountains, but the mountains were a dream. It was a, the mountains were an idea where I grew up. And with and it's a, you know, it's a small town, very conservative community, but even within that conservative community, we were, you know, on the extreme side. My dad was a small town fundamentalist preacher. He was very strict. We're talking pop culture here, so that's was one of the ways that we were very restricted or limited to. We there was only one movie theater in town and it I think it played I don't think it had changed movie per week. I think there was one movie per month. And, you know, that movie had, everybody else in the world had seen it four or five months ago by the time that it got to Yuma. But we were not allowed to go to that movie theater. We were not allowed to listen to secular music. We were not allowed to go to dances. We did have a television, but we didn't have cable. So there's rabbit ears. We had uh, five channels, and one of them was PBS, so I didn't really count that one. And even amongst, What was on those channels, we were very, you know, restricted in what we were allowed to watch. So that was the atmosphere that I grew up uh, pertaining to pop culture and its accessibility. And as a timeline, this is, I mean, mostly growing up in the 80s to early 90s during this time. I went to college in 1993, so... That was sort of the era and the environment that I was growing up with before I went to college and before I met you and uh, started both the education on campus, but also quite a cultural and personal education that took uh, a long time to sort of proceed as well.
0: Right. So, uh, one of our running jokes amongst our friendship group is that Dale literally grew up in Footloose. That's going to that's gonna come back around, so hold on to that characterization right. here for a second. But Dale grew up in Footloose, and he was not Kevin Bacon. He was the daughter of the preacher. Laurie Singer. He was the yeah. Laurie Singer, exactly. He's not the <laughs> Kevin Bacon. He is the Laurie Singer. So, Dale comes to college, and... He and I met a uh, sophomore year. your sophomore year because well, but I, I don't want to fast forward to sophomore year though okay. b- because you' because freshman year for you was really important and I didn't know you yet. So talk about one of my favorite stories about your transition from small town Yuma. And Dale is skipping over a lot of interesting parts of his childhood, like the bomb shelter, for example. <laughs> so we we can go over that. Oh, okay. Go tell tell that before I move on.
1: All right. So yeah, there are there are a, certain, uh, a couple of other stories from my childhood, and these are usually it's stuff that I do try to tell people when when they have a hard time putting it into context or relating to, or if they're like. Oh yeah, I was a Christian in in a smaller town too, and it's it's similar. I guess it's it's just how extreme that experience was for you. But my our, the first school that I attended, this is what Chris was talking about. The first school I attended was in the basement underneath uh, a church, a church that was on a on a dirt road outside of the city. Uh, it, was a, it was a point where my, my father, not only is he very conservative religiously, but also very politically and has a whole sort of anti-government side. So he's attempting to, quote unquote, live off the grid. So this involves us living out uh, ways out in the country, having chickens and, and pigs, and, and my mom making soap from yucca plants or, or, or some weird thing, or lye or whatever. I don't know but then there was he didn't want necessarily us going to the liberal public schools so there was a school started he started in the basement of our church which was also sort of the bomb shelter or tornado shelter for the church as well this was in the 80s when you know had the whole cold war and, and people were expecting uh, atomic blast to happen at any time and in in the basement there were it was kindergarten all the way through 12th grade there were 10 students and we all sat at desks that were uh, lined against a brick wall, and there was a big divider between each desk, and we did—we uh, worked on PACES. It was called a PACE, uh, P-E-A-C-E, Packets of Accelerated Christian Education, which had all the subjects that you normally have, but with a Christian twist. So if it was math, a word problem, it might say, if there are four sinners and God saves two sinners, how many sinners are there left? That sort of thing. And if you had a question... There was a little American flag in a cup in front of you and a hole above your uh, the, your head, and you would put the American flag in the hole. and then Mrs. Dalrymple, uh, which the only reason she got the job of teaching was uh, she had given birth to half of the student body, um, <laughs> would come over and uh, answer your question and uh, take the little American flag down and put it back in the cup. And that was the first through third grade, so the first three years. Of my education, that was sort of the experience that I had before finally transitioning when we moved to Yuma into a, a, a to a more normal uh, public school setting.
0: Yeah. So when we're talking small town and and footloose, the, that's an important piece of this, right? The fact that this wasn't uh, put on, this wasn't a, a an outward projection. This wasn't this was an actual lifestyle choice. This was. Your day to day existence. Yeah, that was our normal. That was your normal. And yeah. so then Dale comes to college with his Amy Grant albums. And <laughs> <laughs> you had you had to get that in. There, you? <laughs> you know you know every time we po- have this conversation, the too, Amy Grant as, as long albums are to... about it. Yes. The as Amy...
1: long as they're gonna talk about it, there's a poster on the wall as well.
0: So. <laughs> there was. There was the Amy Grant albums and there was the Amy Grant poster on the wall. Yeah. But so before Dale is sent off to the quote unquote big city, and by big city, I mean Greeley, Colorado. And if you are somewhere (laughs) out there outside of Colorado, because I know we have a lot of listeners both nationally and internationally, and you're like, where is Greeley, Colorado? Exactly. That's my point. (laughs) Yeah. So he was sent off to the thriving metropolis that was the meatpacking plant capital of the Western United States. And you got this wonderful pep talk before you left Yuma. And I wonder if you might want to share a little of what happened there. Well, my dad
1: was sort of, you know, like a lot of small town dads. He didn't, my dad was very good at preaching, but he was not good at communicating. So he would talk at people a lot, but not with people so much. And we didn't have a lot of close conversations. But before we went, it was sort of—part of it was he wanted me to go to a uh, Christian college. He thought that a secular college would be corruptive, and I should go to a a Christian college to get uh, all the basis in uh, biblical training and, and theology before any sort of secular education. And uh, so part of it was that, you know, I should I should be doing that in the first place. But then also it was just sort of a warning, a general warning about what college would be and who I would meet there. A warning about feminists, that was a big one, a, a warning about meeting gay people and what that might be and how they would try to convert me. And just a warning about just generally a liberal education, what they're t- trying to do As far as trying to to break down your beliefs and what you know as both a Christian and a conservative, they were
0: against you. They were um, opposed to who you are and what you wanted to believe. Just a side note, in my adult life, I have known quite a few gay people. Like Mm -hmm. uh, quite a few, they're really bad at spreading their agenda. If their agenda is converting people, I I have yet to have a gay friend. Who's like, have you tried being gay? You should try gayness. That that's not, it's so awkward to me that that is what people honestly believe.
1: Yeah. It is a very strange sort of, I, uh, but I think it comes from the fact that there are a number of like I knew I knew no I knew no one who was out during the first seventeen years of my life. I knew there were certainly probably well there were certainly some people in town who were gay, uh, but I didn't know anybody who was out. So I think you know it's one of those things of like what came first. And people see somebody who's who probably has been gay but never been out, and then they get into uh, start interact with people who are openly gay in an environment that is accepting. And somebody, suddenly, they're saying, okay, now I'm gay and I'm going to be out and open about my sexuality. And then the, and then the person who you know, had never seen this side of him before is like, see, they're recruited, you know, they're recruiting people to their cause. And this person wasn't gay, they've just convinced them to do so. It's a lot of philosophical somersaults like that that I felt was why so much of the world was very confusing at that time for me.
0: Right. So Dale gets this pep talk, and then he is sent off w- with his Amy Grant poster and his Amy Grant albums, like he's Bryce Dallas Howard in the Village, to <laughs> <laughs> the beautiful metropolis that is Greeley, Colorado. And Dale arrives in Greeley not alone. You came. You came with someone else from Yuma.
1: Yeah, actually, and actually, my first my freshman year was at a. My true freshman year was at a community college in Nebraska. And this is a lot of this, where I'm, I'm going and what I'm choosing. But my best friend from high school is, he's also, he's from a Catholic background, also uh, conservative, but just way less, his family's just way less conservative than my own. And so I have sort of spent a lot of time at their house. His house, we're allowed to watch movies. We're allowed to listen to music. It's much more relaxing there. And we we just were very close friends at that time, I wanted to get out of Yuma, which there really was at that time, at least of ways of fathoming how to do that. There was, uh, you went into the military or you went to college. I'm sure there are other ways, but it was hard to imagine any, any doing it any other way. And so I, I wanted to go to college and I didn't really know how to go to college. Nobody in my family had gone to, as far as I know, nobody in my direct family had gone to a secular university before. My dad attended Bible college, obviously, but nobody had gone to a secular college, and I didn't really know how it was done. So basically, I I was just following my best friend, Michael. I was just following him. When he filled out his grant information, his mom helped us both do that. When he decided he was going to do a year at, at this community college in Nebraska, I was like, all right, let's do that. When he decided to transfer to Greeley, I, so it, it was, and I think it'd been very difficult for me to do all this without him at the time. I owe a, owe a debt to that guy for, for sort of guiding me through that. But yeah, it was, it was somebody to, well, a way to sort of hang on to some roots, to know somebody, but also to somebody to sort of be with me as I faced a lot of those new challenges
0: too. So we arrive in Greeley, in Greeley, Colorado, and... The first time I met Dale was I had applied for a job that I didn't think I was going to get because for those of you who have spent some time in college, you probably understand what a resident assistant is, what an RA is. So I had been an RA, a resident assistant, and I had applied for a promotion. I had applied for an assistant hall director position. Now, this was really ballsy of me because I was really bad at my job. <laughs> I was I was quite possibly one of the worst RAs in the history of residence life as a concept. And so I applied for this job as an assistant hall director, and I did not think I was going to get it, and I did not get it. And then... Our assistant hall director quit like three days before school opened. And they said, hey, you applied for this and we need someone today. So I guess it's you. And then I said, cool, let me proceed to be really bad at this job too for the next two years. (laughs) (laughs) So, But one of the things that the assistant hall director had to do was they had to supervise the other students who worked the front desk. And so... I inherited the staff, the front desk staff of the person who was supposed to be the assistant hall director. And one of those staff members was young master Dale Bridges.
1: Yeah, that's right. You get grant money to work on campus at that time. So if you had a job, the university didn't have to to pay that money. It was sort of the federal grant money that was made. And before that, the year before that, I was working in the cafeteria, which is a terrible job to be working. But, you know, it, it is what it is. And then I got the front desk job, which is a great gig because you just sit around and chat with uh, people coming through and then every once in a while tell somebody that they have to sign in or something. And so we come on the second year of that job and that is the first time that we met. And I think like our sense of humor, I think, lined up first. I think that was one of the first things that we just we got each other's jokes very quickly.
0: Yes, I would agree with that. And then we had several bonding experiences as friends and sort of the, the rest is history, so to speak, uh, including Dale standing up at my wedding and me actually being the the efficient at his wedding and him uh, living with us for a little while and in many ways helping to. A stat, when my wife and I first got married, Dale was kind of our Dupree. For those of you who have seen Yumi and Dupree, Dale was was the Owen Wilson in that situation, and then, yeah. So it's been it's been just about twenty years, a little over twenty years, and. Over the course of that, what has been the most fun part for me of our friendship is that I study popular culture for a living. It's what I do. And I have been, I've spent my entire life since I was very, very little, completely immersed in popular culture. I've always loved popular culture. I've always loved material culture. So I've always wanted toys. I've always wanted the stuff. I always wanted to play with things and mess with things and have things. And I wanted to see all the movies and all the TV shows and listen to all the music. And so that's what I did as a kid. And that's what I do now. I just had a conversation with a friend of mine where I was telling her about this new band that I have discovered and they're a folk band and they play bluegrass music. And she was like, I have no way of predicting what kind of music you were ever going to tell me about, (laughs) Uh, because the truth is I listen to literally all kinds of stuff because I've I've always wanted to, I have a collector's mentality and I've always wanted to collect all the things, whatever the thing is, whether that's a toy line or whether that's, you know, movie knowledge or TV shows or movies, music or whatever. So that's my personality by nature. And then I got this friend who knew nothing about anything.
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a blank slate.
0: Yeah. And so it was a place where I could just dump all the cool stuff that I knew. Like I would say, hey, Dale, you you never seen this, right? And he would say, of course not. And then we could watch it, right? So it was like a cool place to dump stuff that I loved. So our friendship really grew around popular culture stuff in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think too like I mean that's one
1: of uh, like that's one of the interesting aspects of when we were talking about uh, doing this show of how being in Yuma was geographically isolating and I think the stringent extreme interpretation of religion that my father had us follow was also isolating. But I think that not participating in pop culture might have been the most isolating thing of all because that's sort of a universal language for an entire, certainly for an entire generation. And I couldn't speak that language uh, growing up a lot. You know, I, we would, I, I, we were allowed to watch some shows if it had like car chases in it. Weirdly, for some reason, my my dad uh, liked Star Trek, so we were allowed to watch that. But then friends at school would be talking about The Simpsons or Saturday Night Live, and I couldn't, couldn't have that. I didn't have that language and the tools to talk with it to those things. And so a lot of college for me was, uh, was playing catch-up on so many things, from music to uh, shows to movies, and it, sort of learning that language of how to interact across. from Because like, that's the way also you can connect with people who have different backgrounds from you, people who have completely uh, different lives from you is if you like some of the same pop culture and then you start talking about that. And then you can get into some other aspects, but like, that's the thing that ties you to a lot of people at the beginning. And I didn't have a lot of that, which I think was why also I stayed pretty close to Michael, the guy that I moved to college with and, and to the small friend group's that had that similar language that I grew up with, the religious language, the conservative language. But once I was able to broaden my uh, pop culture intake, I was also able to broaden my friend base and my knowledge in so many other things because I I was speaking that language
0: as well. And it wasn't a one-way street. I mean, Dale also introduced me to some popular culture that I had no idea existed as well. The children's book you used to read, where the, for example? <laughs>
1: oh, uh, uh, Brown Shadow. Yeah. <laughs>
0: brown Shadow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Christianity and conservatives has its own uh, pop culture that they condone and are cool with. It involves a lot of Disney stuff and, and certain types of, yeah, reading material and other things that the rest of the culture doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to. And, and music, it's often like sort of bad versions of what is out there for the rest of the world. I think it's gotten better over the years. I haven't really kept up with Christian music and Christian culture, but at that time, you know, there was, if you were into Metallica, there was a Petra, which was a Christian Metallica. And if you were into a female singer, there would be a Christian version of that sort of singer. <laughs> it was the Christian version, so all the love songs would be to Jesus instead of to like a woman. And, uh,
0: I can remember I was a teenager, late teenager, and there was this show called Roundhouse. It came on SNCC. And it was probably a little too young for me, but all the cast members were my age. So I really kind of got into the show. And I can remember when Crystal Lewis left that show and became a Christian singer and how, you know, sad I was. Mostly because, like you said, she stopped singing to me and started singing to Jesus.
1: Yeah. And then there was DC Talk, which was Christianity trying to get into hip hop, which is pretty sad. I mean, even those things, my dad was not happy about them. You know what I mean? If he would hear me listening to these bands or whatever, because the music was similar to the other things he would hear on the radio, he was upset about them. But since they were Christian, it, it sort of would get a pass. Listening to things that are really where the actual music came from, then becomes kind of mind blowing for somebody who, you know, wasn't allowed to get into the pop culture.
0: Okay. So here's what I want to do. Cause I'm looking at the clock. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back in two and two, and then I'm going to have Dale tell you the most amazing story about Footloose you are ever going to hear. So back in two and two.
1: Hey, Marley. Hey, MJ. We're millennials, right? Yeah, very much. Which means we know history isn't all heroes, gods, and monsters. No, I'm pretty disillusioned about that. Well, guess what? History isn't just bad,
0: it's cursed. And on Cursed History, a new podcast, we explore the dark, twisted, grotesque, and just plain weird events and people in history that you didn't know existed.
1: Join us, Fly Honeys, for bi weekly chats about little known stories from history and their modern day effects. Our first episode, Essex, is coming out on June 26th. And trust me, you do not want to miss this story. Follow us on Twitter at Cursed underscore History and listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Cursed History, the truth is worse than you thought. And we're back. Before the break, I totally promised you... In very big language, a really great story about Footloose, and now I'm going to turn it over to Dale to tell you a really great story about Footloose.
1: All right. So uh, now that we've gone through a little bit of my background, it was probably come as no surprise to you that I had never seen the movie Footloose. Footloose was a very big movie that came out, and I like I it was something I should have seen. Everybody in their teenage years at that time during the you know the
0: late '80s. Footloose came out in 1984. I did yeah. not know okay. that. 1984. That's so earlier than I thought. Yeah. yeah, it's older than I thought. And so it's, uh, it, it, but
1: it was something that really had a big impact, especially on teen culture. And, and most most people listening, if they haven't seen the movie, they know about it. It's the story of a guy, uh, in this case, Kevin Bacon, moving to a small town from Chicago because his, his parents get a divorce and his, they have family in this small town. And the, in this small town, it's illegal to dance. So are not allowed to dance in this small town. And then, the whole, and then the whole story is Kevin Bacon, you know, convincing the powers that be that, that, to, to dance their hearts out across an hour and a, and a half there. But when I got to college, when you get to college, one of the wonderful things is everybody is in the same boat. They don't really know anybody and all you have really is your story to share. You know, that those late night sessions where you're sitting in the lobby talking to that other person about their background and, and sort of sharing your story and they're sharing their story. And it's a, it's a bonding experience that feels a little bit like camp. And it's great. Those first few years of college are a lot like that. So I would tell people my origin story, as it were. And over and over again, everybody would say, oh, it's just like Kevin Bacon and Footloose. And a lot of times I would, just, I would just nod and say, yeah, and then sometimes I'd say that I'd never seen it, and, they would, and people would freak out. They would just freak out. Because, for one, to, for somebody of our age group who had not seen Footloose at the time was just incredible, but also just the, the similarities that they believed were between that, that story, that movie, and my, my life were just too incredible that I hadn't seen it. And so I was, I think it was the first time I saw it, there was, a, there was a young woman who I was attracted to who wanted to show me the movie. And I was, of course, willing to do anything that she was wanting to do. And so we watched the movie and it's really surreal. It's very surreal to have, it's like, if, if anybody listening, if you're thinking of sort of the main things that molded you as a person and everybody has seen or experienced a pop culture thing that they think exactly exemplifies your life, exactly exemplifies the things that you're talking about. And they think it's ju- that is just, it's just that thing. This is, this is your story. Your story was told and you didn't even know it. And you've never experienced that before. And it's very surreal to go watch that thing that they think is exactly your life so watching footloose was this uh, i think the first time i was mostly just concerned about the girl in the room but then over time you know i watched it with other people who had sort of the same shock and surprise of my lack of footloose knowledge and it was just a it's a for one there are certain things that the movie gets right and then certain things that the movie gets drastically wrong and the well let me let me skip ahead a little bit. I'm going to come back and, and tell about the movie. So this, this happened in college uh, a few times. I watched the movie a little bit. You know, we had that conversation. And then later on, I, w- I would start mostly when I was talking to women and, and, and trying to impress women, I would sort of slip in, you know, I slip in a joke about my background, my childhood being like footless, and that would get a laugh. And so I might get some extra humor points out of that in those conversations and stuff like that. But I never really paid that much attention to Footloose until it was in my early... I got a job. This is a really strange that I got... I'd never worked at a newspaper before, but I sort of lied on my resume and happened to land a job being the arts and entertainment editor at a weekly newspaper in Boulder, Colorado. As one does. As as. <laughs> As one does in the normal course of human events.
0: I'm a little surprised that the investigative reporting at the paper that you got a job as an editor at did not think to, you know, investigate you. Yeah,
1: except that once you know about small newspapers and the amount of time that anybody has it to do anything, it's really not all that (laughs) surprising. I I did have a couple of writing samples that I showed them that I did do some freelance publication, and they were impressed enough by that. I didn't get that editor job right away. At first, I got sort of like a part-time calendar job and then worked my way up to the editor job. But I did get this, the irony of me being the pop culture editor for a newspaper, after all these things had happened. And then along those lines, Footloose had, I think, like 20th anniversary. Yeah, I think it would be about that time. It would be like a 20th anniversary DVD that came out. And it was, uh, somebody gave it to me as a joke on my birthday. I think it might have been Marcy, actually.
0: Our friend, the incomparable Marcy Wells. Shout out. What up, Mars?
1: And I, I thought, ah, ha ha, that's pretty funny. And I went home and I put the movie in and I watched it. I was like, "Oh, this is uh, better than I remembered." And then the next day, I watched the behind the scenes. And then the next day, I watched like the interview with Kevin Bacon. And I got the idea in my head. And it, and it must be said that I was also smoking an abnormal amount of pot at this time. That th- it would be a good idea to watch this movie every single day for a year. So for an entire year, I wouldn't. I didn't have to watch the whole movie. But I would watch a part of what was on this DVD every single day for a year. So usually what would happen when I get up in the morning, I put it into the DVD player and it'd be on in the background while I was doing stuff. And so I watched uh, pieces of Footloose for 365 days straight, which is definitely insane. And I don't advise it, it is, but that's what happened. Okay. So amongst all that time, I started, and, and while I was writing about pop culture and I was thinking about pop culture all the time, I started thinking about Footloose, obviously, a lot. And, and what came up was a lot of strange ideas and thoughts of uh, somebody who's probably seen Footloose more than anybody else on the planet. And so a few of the things were this. One is they do a, There's some things about the movie that they do very well. The setting is very good. They didn't use a Hollywood set; they went to a real small town. I I think it's in Montana. There are mountains in the background. I think it's in some small town on Montana. Anyway, it's called Beaumont. They don't give the state when they do it, but they filmed it in a real small town, and it feels like a real small town. That was a really good call on their part. The streets, the main street, the business district. The school, the girls usually have sort of permed hair and sort of big hair in the background. And the the guys are wearing a lot of flannel and it's, a you know, all the fashions are a little bit out of date. And it's that's, it feels very much like a small
0: town culture. According to IMDb, Uh, Beaumont is supposed to be in Oklahoma. Oklahoma? That's what IMDb Uh, says. Although it was filmed in Utah, but Beaumont in the film is supposed to be in Oklahoma.
1: I see. Utah does, that feels a lot more uh, realistic. I mean, I haven't ever been to Oklahoma, to be honest with you. But yeah, so, but it was also supposed to be any sort of generic small town. And this is also, the movie itself is based on a real story. The writer and director of the movie saw a story, a small story in a a newspaper about a high school that dancing had been outlawed in their town during like the, the 40s or 50s or something. And they had finally had their first prom in the 80s. They finally petitioned. Nothing else, I think, in the story is correct, but that's what inspired the writer to do the story. And like I said, they did a good job with certain aspects. Certain aspects are just so insanely out of place. For one, everybody kept comparing me to Kevin Bacon in the story, and I was certainly not Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon was the cool outside kid that gets... uh, He's already been influenced by pop culture. He already knows all these things. If anything, I was the Reverend Shaw, who's played uh, such a great cast for uh, kind of a silly movie in a lot of cases. Kevin Bacon, you have Diane Wiest, Sarah Jessica Parker's in it, Laurie Singer, and John Lithgow plays the pastor. And so his, his daughter, Laurie Singer, would be you. <laughs> She's not allowed to do anything. She's not allowed to really go out on dates. But she sort of fits that rebellious preacher's kid stereotype a little bit too much. Like, she's honestly, there's a point, like, kind of suicidal. uh, There's a point where they're driving down the highway, and she decides to get out of the window of the car going down the highway and stick one foot in the window of the car driving next to him, which has her boyfriend in it, and one foot on the, the door of the window that has, and then a semi's is coming and she just not, is unfazed. She's just still, because the music's going Sammy Hagar, which is ridiculous. And she's like just rocking out. And then suddenly at the last second, she dives which which I think is defies all laws of physics, dives back into the window. And then nobody talks to a high school counselor about it. Nobody mentions <laughs> it to her dad. You know, it's just right. like, a, you know, that's, that's what she does. That's Ariel does. Yeah. And there, there are other sort of very hyperbolic aspects of the movie like this as well. But then there are other weird things like everybody, every like teenager in the small town travels around by dirt bike. I don't know why they think that this is a normal thing. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, kids in small towns do have dirt bikes, but they're not the main so- mode of transportation. Also, they play chicken with tractors, which is. Patently ridiculous. I mean, this, the, the cliche of the trope of the, the playing chicken in vehicles in movies is just kind of ridiculous in general. And I suppose that they were, you know uh, playing off that for the movie of when Lori Singer's character starts showing interest in him, and so her boyfriend gets pissed off and challenges him to Tractor Chicken, which is exactly what it sounds like. but there's no way kids on a farm would play the like your whole livelihood tractors are very expensive and if you're a farm kid you know your entire farm is wrapped up in the you know your entire livelihood is wrapped up in that tractor and the fact that you would just like barrel it down this ravine towards another tractor possibly destroy both of them is is just insane
0: Doesn't one of them end up in a ditch? Yeah. Yeah, Ren's doing the tractor he
1: tries to jump off his shoelace catches on the pedal so he can't. And then the other guy at the last second swerves and falls into a ditch. And then everybody's just cheering. How are they going to get that tractor out of that ditch? Is it permanently destroyed? How are they going to get the crops in? Because <laughs> <laughs> right. um, there's like so many things that I don't know what this kid's dad, is, who this kid's dad is, but like, there's, he's going to be so pissed off. Also the soundtrack, this is sort of, it's not a musical because nobody's singing in it. But I think at the time they called it a dancicle or a popsicle, which I thought was very clever. But it is a musically oriented movie. You can't have this movie without the, the soundtrack to it. And once again, this, this is a small town setting. And there's not a single country song on the soundtrack. Not, not a single one, which is also insane because it should be about 75% country and then, you know, some heavy metal thrown in for, cause there's always some heavy metal dudes in small towns yeah, and some ballads for you to slow dance to, but the rest of it's pretty much all country.
0: My favorite part of Footloose is how, so Ren, Kevin Bacon, right? Mm-hmm. Shows up yep. in town and I forget who plays him. I forget his name. So it's the big country kid, right? And oh, Chris Penn. Chris, oh, it is Chris Penn. That's right. So yeah, they they pass each other in the hallway. They like exchange a bunch of insults, whatever. And then in the next scene, they're like best friends, and there's really no explanation of how the relationship develops. In yeah, he in, he
1: insults him once, and yeah. then that's pretty much their, their a close friendship. But I mean, it's my like that's another that's another thing from the movie. If you watch the movie, the main love interest is supposed to be Laurie Singer. That's who catches Ren's eye early on, and they, you know, they, but their their relationship is awkward throughout the entire, they really don't have a whole lot of chemistry, aside from, like, seems like a more of a good friendship between them, but the chemistry between (laughs) Kevin Bacon and Chris Penn is immediate (laughs) and electrifying. If you look at the way they're looking at each other, even from the beginning, this is a love story about to happen. And I think that's the behind-the-scenes, because at some point, which was also true in real life, Chris Penn didn't know how to dance at this, during this movie. And he had to learn how to dance for the movie, which is adorable mm-hmm. in and of itself. But then there's all these scenes about Kevin Bacon's character teaching Chris Penn how to dance. And it's just, they are amazing. It's just a, a very... Yeah, they are it's a touching love story. But, and when by the time they go to prom with separate people, you know that that's them going to prom together. Like Kevin
0: Bacon is not skipping through the tulips literally with Laurie Singer. He's skipping through the tulips literally with Chris Penn. Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's it's them that they have the chemistry. It's them that are this true this true unspoken love story of the small town is between these these two guys that just can't be together. But yeah, that's that's another aspect of the of the movie too. After watching it
0: so many times and being like, "Oh, th- that really," I think this is this is really what's happening behind the scenes here. I just want to point out that Footloose, apparently, when it was all said and done, grossed eighty million thirty five thousand dollars at the box office. It's insane in nineteen eighty four. For comparison yeah. today, that would be. but its budget was only $8 million. So it made 10 times its budget at the box office.
1: Yeah, it was huge. And nobody paid that much attention to it. It was this little project. It didn't have a big budget. And nobody was paying a whole lot of attention to it. And the whole, like they still, they did a very good job of re- releasing it because I think even before the movie came out, they had had at least two number one hits. Yeah. I think the soundtrack went double platinum. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. The soundtrack was crazy popular. Certainly the title song from Kenny Loggins, which is also a great advertisement, right? And then they got MTV to be playing the songs. And I think uh, doing music videos that had, I think, correct, uh, Kevin Bacon in them. So very good job at that time promoting it to the right audience. And then when it came out, yeah, it was... It was a smash hit that nobody really saw coming except for the people who, who, you know, had made it, they'd really believed in it.
0: And speaking of that soundtrack, while Footloose is the most popular song from that soundtrack, I actually think Kenny Loggins' other song from that soundtrack, which is I'm Free, is an exponentially mm-hmm. better song. I'm not a huge Kenny Loggins fan, but I would say most Kenny Loggins
1: songs are better than Footloose. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think, well i would agree with that certainly danger <laughs> zone right <laughs> yeah <laughs> danger zone
1: <laughs> is pretty great but yeah kenny loggins really had a had a streak going there for a while especially themed songs and i guess they really the director really yeah he picked he wanted kenny loggins to do it and they wrote the song together like it was you know this sort of all night inspiration that they had of uh, where the song just sort of clicked and came together and yeah, somebody did a great job of picking to that soundtrack. I mean, most of those songs on that soundtrack aren't really that great anymore. We don't think about them all that much anymore, but at that time, they were huge. Yeah. Also, no real... There was... I mean, Sammy Hagar is the close it has to real rock music on there. And as we know, uh, Sammy Hagar... It's Quiet
0: Riot's on that soundtrack, though. Quiet Riot, that's true. Not that Quiet
1: Riot, but nothing like... I mean, you don't have any sort of a metal song. You sort of need the right. At le- you need the metal song in order because that's that's the other major small. You've got country music for every you know all the the cowboys in town, but then you've got those angry young men who are just uh, like pissed off that metal music speaks to. So that's a, definitely was left out of the small town experience. I would say of that movie.
0: Another thing I learned in my research for this episode is that. Footloose was one of the last movies to hit the soundtrack hat trick that is it was released on vinyl and on cassette and on eight track oh, eight track yeah, yeah, that I didn't even know they were still making eight tracks in the eighties exactly. It was one of the last movie soundtracks to be released on eight track yeah it was
1: it was a huge it was a huge money maker and still continues and like I said, somebody also. Somebody put did put it's a ridiculous movie, but somebody did put a lot of love into it. The the casting in particular is just is that that is a great cast to have for such a weird little movie. I think Jonathan Lithgow brings so much I mean that was it's an easy character, his small town preacher character to just play the stereotypes in that. But he brings so much complexity to it and also the mom, Diane Wees to his everybody's mom in the in 80s movies she's just the quintessential 80s mom i think
0: it wasn't a real critical success either it made a <laughs> no. ton of it made a ton of money but critics kind of hated it yeah and understandably
1: so it's not a great movie at all it's not a great story it's pretty sappy it plays really hard on those like but it really plays to those teen themes, which were, I think, bigger in the 80s, it seems like, than any other any other time period. I is the first time, I think, that Hollywood's was really just recognizing a whole generation of teenagers going to the movies and having that experience, and also that they had these emotions. you thinking of the John Hughes movies, of course, right. I had to do that. But yeah, it hit on all those great themes, and yeah, I, I think... The fact that it's such an extremist idea of dancing being illegal in an entire town, but I think what really strikes home with the entire teenage audience is this type of authoritarianism that, that, that comes with that. This, the, the preacher the, telling this entire small town, this entire small town just clamping down on the expression of teenagers and you can do this and you can't do this. And I think that rang true with everybody around the country, no matter what background that you came from.
0: Two things. Number one, you just reminded me that next season, I'm going to have to have you come back because you and I absolutely need to do a whole episode just on John Hughes movies. (laughs) At one point, Dale and I had this idea that we were going to write a book called John Hughes Ruined My Life. And I think (laughs) that that is still a thing that should happen because John Hughes is responsible for a lot of really misguided conceptions about relationships and romance that our entire generation. Yeah. He really had. set up
1: a lot, of, there's a lot of problematic things in those movies. For yeah.
0: Sure. John Hughes jacked us all up in, in some very specific ways. <laughs> <laughs> but the second thing is, I think that this story, this, this, story about Footloose. And I think here, also looking at the clock, we're veering towards our final question here, which I'll, I'll pose in a second. And usually I let the guest go first, but I think this time I'm going to go first and then I'll let you, which is uh, Footloose, so what? What's the so what here? But I think for me, the so what is listening to your story And then how you got to this one popular culture text that everyone else defined your upbringing by. And Dale and I have had this conversation a lot. This, he is not exaggerating when he says that for most of our college experience, whenever Dale would say, here's where I'm from, people would go, oh, like Footloose. Almost every single time. And so other people... That's the picture that they have of your life as a kid. And so this one popular culture text can define you for other people who don't really have access to your life, to your upbringing. Because me, as a kid who grew up also in Colorado, but in a very different environment, in a very white environment suburban, upper-middle-class neighborhood school friendship group. Access to all the popular culture in the world and access to all of the media consumption in the world. Very different upbringing. I think that this film is both a useful text and also a monster (laughs) of sort. In that it really is a, a sketch, a shorthand, that, as you say, is not necessarily accurate. And I don't know that there is a text that does the same thing for me that this text has done for, and, and, and in many cases, to you. And I, maybe that's part of the privilege of an upper-middle-class suburban life.
1: Yeah, it's certainly not. It's definitely not what I would pick, or probably anyone would, would pick, as people pick Star Wars to be obsessed with, and, and like you said, become a collector of things and to, to talk about things. People pick these movies that seem to represent. And this one was very much picked for me. I certainly wouldn't have chosen to be represented most closely by Footless. I do think it was in, it's such a. It was it was a surreal experience. And I just think, you know, something to ponder as far as how media and pop culture influences how people perceive other people and how things are. And this is where one of the, there's such a real divide, a, a huge divide that I think about a lot, because I, I still have a lot of family who's back in small towns and they're raised in the same environment or a similar environment that I was. And I think that there's a whole generation of young, small-town teenagers who are growing up with a bit of an identity crisis. The bubble of the small town was a sort of a geographic bubble and a, a cultural bubble. And I think the internet, in a lot of ways, just sort of popped that way before any of them were ready for it, in both good and bad ways. And I think now a lot of people from small towns are not seeing the representation in the media that they ha- they used to see. You know, you used to have shows, the Andy Griffith Show or the Beverly Hillbillies or, you know, a variety of things where you would see small town people. There's still plenty of it, but it doesn't have the same center stage in the culture that it used to. And I think there's a bit of an identity crisis, then they feel the entire country's getting out of control and going away from them. Uh, And and because in a lot of ways that it is, and their reactions to it are pretty extreme, I think. I I don't don't think you can contribute things to what, what is going on currently or the election of Trump directly. But these are, I think, are conversations that a lot of times are interesting to have as far as how these things are being perceived by a culture outside of what you're accustomed to. And I I don't think I would even know a lot of this if I wasn't still in touch with the people that I grew up with and the the people that are in my family and watching their perceptions of things in a completely different and sort of alien way at this point. But then I often do think back to Footloose and how that Hollywood representation of what my life was supposed to be like was, was very off in a lot of ways and worked on the level that it works for the movie, but on sort of a a personal definition of how these things are actually take place in a small town are completely foreign as well.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I think that's the part I find so interesting is here's this thing that those of us outside of the situation are like, yeah, this is totally representative. And then someone who's from an actual place like this is like, "Mm, not so much.
1: Yeah, and over and over again, and we see these stories, and it, it, it always sort of surprises me that people in small towns can't all also see the the reasons why people in the trans community, for instance, would want realistic representations of themselves in the media and on screen, and any other culture would want that for themselves, and that they don't see that, and that uh, they find that problematic. We all need that. We all crave to see ourselves in Because these are the stories. Our our entire culture, our entire world is made up of stories. If anything that human civilization is, it's an ongoing story that we're all telling to ourselves. And we need to see ourselves in that story. Otherwise, it's hard to know where we fit into the narrative. And the narrative is everything.
0: What is my place in the story? Yes. What What is my place in the narrative? Yeah. And if I don't see my place, how am I supposed to know? Right. Right. Well, this has been a very interesting conversation, I think. And as I said, now that I've coerced Dale Bridges onto the show once, I'm definitely planning to have him come back around again next season and we'll talk about more stuff. Sounds fun. But I get to talk to Dale all the time because he's my best friend and you don't. So I'm excited for you to hear more from him. I'm also excited for you to check out his work. His work is available pretty widely on, on whatever platform you get your books from. I'm not going to plug any particular platform, but wherever you get books, look for Dale Bridges. And do you want to, do you want to plug anything before I wrap this up?
1: There's a website, dalebridges.org that you can visit and yeah, you can see stuff there.
0: Excellent. And of course, before We leave. Shout out and hello and much love to Michelle. So for Dale Bridges, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. Thank you so much for hanging in with us. I will talk to you again in two weeks. Stay safe out there. Black Lives Matter. Wash your hands. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a review wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcast Check out the deconstructionworkers.com or follow us at facebook.com slash the deconstruction workers or on Instagram at deconstruction workers. This podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers Podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, thank you for supporting alternate scholarship and academic public engagement. Deconstruction Workers Podcast is copyright 2020. All rights reserved.